Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to spend a few minutes with you on a Wednesday afternoon to discuss some fascinating and important aspects of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism and of history and of the great sages that were shining lights in the Jewish people. Yesterday was the wonderful day of Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. And um, we have celebrations of Lag Bohem. So let's talk a little bit about that, why that is, what is the background with regards to Lag Bohemia. Unfortunately, uh, we our celebrations usually on Monday night when Lag Bohemia begins, um, which is actually the 18th of the month of ER. Uh, Monday we had those big storms, and so many of the uh, Lag Bohemia celebrations were washed out due to the rain and the mud and the cold weather. Um, but that shouldn't dampen our spirits because Lagba Omer is supposed to be a day when we remember the great light of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon was a Talmud, a student of Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Shimon, um, he was born in the year 100 of the Common Era. He died in the year 170 of the Common Era. One of the great scholars of his time and a leader during, during the time when the Romans were had occupied Eretz Israel, had destroyed the Second Temple. Uh, Rabbi Shimon criticized the Roman government because they were anti-Semitic and they curtailed the religious practice of the Jewish people and they prevented the Jewish people from learning Torah, amongst other things. And as a result of that, he received information that the government wanted to execute him and he was forced to then go into hiding with his son. His son was named is Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Loza, um, ben Rabbi Shimon, and they went into hiding. The Gemara and Shabbos tells us in Daflamut Gimel that they were hiding in a cave in a place called Pekin, which is a place in the Galil, in the north of Eretz Israel. It's very high up in a mountain. Um, I've actually been there. Uh, the, uh, my car could barely get up the hill. It was so steep, very, very steep hill. And they hid in a cave for those 12 years, and there was a carob tree just outside the cave, and there was a stream of water that flew th that flowed through the mountains, and that's how they survived, on carobs and with the water from that mountain stream. And they were there for 12 years. They then came out the cave, and they saw somebody working the fields, and they said to that individual, how could you leave Chaya Oilam, how could you be involved in mundane activities and ignore your eternal responsibilities of learning Torah and doing mitzvahs. You know, how could you waste your time working the fields? And Hashem spoke to them and said, um, they actually looked at the field and burnt up the field. That was their, their level of spiritual greatness. Hashem said to them, um, is it for this that I have given you spiritual greatness? And so Hashem said to them, they weren't ready now to come out and re, um, and uh, get involved in society again, reintegrate into the normal world, and they went back for another year, and then they were ready to come out. So this was the level of Rabbi Shimon and his son Rabbi Loza. Um, they are both buried in Miron, 
And that's why on Lagba Umir yesterday, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people um, in Eretz Israel flock to Miron in order to pay homage to the great Rabbi Shimon and his son Rabbi Loza um, and to go to the, the burial site. And according to our holy tradition, so Rabbi Shimon was the author of the Zohar, which is the classic work of Jewish mysticism. And um, the Zohar says that on this day, the day of the death of Rabbi Shimon, on Yud Ches Iyar, which is Lagab Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, so Rabbi Shimon re- revealed great secrets, great Kabbalistic secrets to the world. And that light shone very brightly. In fact, it says that the sun didn't set until Rabbi Shimon had completed his teachings, had finished teaching what he wanted to reveal to his students. Not only then did the sun set at a delayed time, and that's why we light our bonfires, and that's why they giant yurtzeit candles to Rabbi Shimon, but they all also um, represent the great light and warmth that Rabbi Shimon's Kabbalistic wisdom and Torah brought to the world. Now, we might ask ourselves, in fact, it says in the Shulchan Aruch, um, the Ramor writes, and it's also the 18th of year, which was yesterday, was the Yotzer of the Ramor. We're going to speak a lot about the Ramor in a few moments. So he says, we are noeg to have Ktsas Simcha on this day of Lagbomir. Now, it's interesting. Now, how can we have Simcha on this day? We know that there are different customs of mourning at this time. So we... Uh, are in the morning during Sphira. So Sphira is the time from Pesach to Shavuos. There's a mitzvah to bring a korban omer, an omer offering, which was barley, on the second day of Pesach. And from that day, we count each day right until Kabbalah Sotor, right until Shavuos, which is the 50th day, when we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's the mitzvah in the Torah, to bring this offering and each day to count. Today, we don't have a base, base on Big Dash. We don't bring the Omer offering. So the mitzvah is not Doirais. It's not a Torah commandment. It's a Durabon, a Durabon, it's a commandment. But still, we count every day with a bracha, right until Shavuos. Um, and, uh, but it's also, there's mourning associated with this period, this time period, because we know the Gemara and Yavamas tells us that at this time, the Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva died. There were 24,000 Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara said they died between Pesach between Pesach and Shavuos, and we, at part of our tradition, that they there were thirty-two days in which they died, um, and so we observe customs of mourning for thirty-two days in remembrance of the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva. The Gemara says the reason why they died is Shilonago covered because they didn't show each other covered honor dignity, they didn't treat each other with the honor and dignity that they should have. And that's what was the cause of their death, um, which obviously was a tremendous tragedy. And we remember that tragedy. So that's why we don't cut our hair and we don't shave. We don't listen to music. We don't have weddings during the time of Sphira. Now, there's a discussion amongst the Poiskim, when exactly are those 32 days? So some people keep the 32 days from Pesach until Lagbomer, and it means that their practices of mourning are finished. Some people keep the practices of morning 32 days from Rosh Chodesh Iyar, from the beginning of the month of Iyar, right up until Shlosh Yisumayakbala, three days before Shavuos. So those are the two predominant minhagim to observe the morning. The general minhagim lita, the Mishnah says, was to keep the second part of the sphere from the Rosh Chodesh Iyar, and that is 
what the Beistin of South Africa do is they uh, the custom of the Beistin is to observe the morning from um, Rosh Chodesh Iyar. But many people follow the custom that most in Eretz Yisrael follow, which is the first part of Sfira, uh, until Lag Bo'amir. But either way, everybody agrees that on the day, the 33rd day of the Omer, so the, there was no death of the students of Rabbi Akiba. And so it was a, either it was the end of the dying or it was a respite, a temporary respite of the dying. And that's why we have Ksas Simcha. But Ksas Simcha, the Ramah says, how can you, how can we be happy? This tragedy was just absolutely indescribable. 24,000 students. And these were the ones that would pass Torah on to the next generation. Uh, we don't have a yeshiva today with 24,000 students, even with the mere yeshiva, with the many thousands learning in Mir and Yerushalayim, and with Lakewood yeshivas, neither of them are 24,000. So we can imagine the magnitude of the tragedy that those students died. So how could we have Ktsas Simcha, some celebration, some joy on the day of Lagwame? Please stay with us. We'll answer that question when we return. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're discussing Lagwa Amir, which was yesterday. And the reason why we have celebrations on Lagba Omer, despite the terrible calamity of the death of the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva, which is why we have customs of mourning at this time, Lagba Omer was either the end of the process or a temporary response to that. But we have joy on Lagba Omer. Why is that so? And the answer really is quite beautiful and quite inspiring. And that is, the Gemara tells us that even though the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva died to 24,000, the Gemara says, The world was desolate until Rabbi Akiva came to the rabbis in the south of Eretz Israel. And these were, these are the Talmudim, Rabbi, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yoisi, Rabbi Shimon, which is Rabbi Shimon Ba'echai, and Rabbi Loza, Ben Shamua. Those were the five Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva. The Heim, Heim, Hemidu Torah, Oisosha. And those were the ones that kept the Torah alive at that time. Those five Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva were the ones that ensured that the Torah remained alive within the consciousness of the Jewish people and was passed on to the next generation. In other words, if it weren't for Rabbi Akiva, and his five Talmudim, the Torah would have been lost, would have lost the oral tradition, would have lost our understanding of the Torah that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Because if you just look at the written Torah, so the written Torah is very brief and very cryptic and leaves us wondering what it means. It's the oral tradition that explains what the written Torah is saying. It's the oral tradition that explains the background and the worlds and the understanding and the many, many details that each word in the Torah is referring to. So without the oral tradition, we would be in the dark, we would be lost. And that would have been lost, God forbid, if it weren't for Rabbi Akiva and his 12th, 5th Talmudim at the times of the terrible Roman persecution of the Jewish people. So let's think about that. What happened? 
So Rabbi Akiva, the great Gadol Ador, he was the greatest rabbi of the generation. And he has the massive base midrash, the massive yeshiva, 24,000 Talmudim, 24,000 outstanding Talmudim. And then all of a sudden, in a period of 32 days, these Talmudim begin to die. In one month, the Talmudim die. So we could imagine how broken and devastated Rabbi Akiva must have been. He must have been absolutely heartbroken. Finished. That his Talmudim, he obviously didn't succeed in teaching his Talmudim in the right way. And therefore they didn't behave in the right way. And as a result, they died. Wow. That is such a blow to a human being. It just can finish one off. But Rabbi, what did Rabbi Akiva do? Rabbi Akiva kept going. And he showed unbelievable resilience. And he thought to himself, okay, I've lost my Talmudim, but I still have a future. I still have work to do. I still have a reason to get up in the morning and to carry on. Most of us would uh, go into a deep, dark depression, never to reemerge. But Rabbi Akiva kept strong and he moved forward and although the 24,000 were tragically dead he carried on building with his five Talmudim and he thought okay five is something it's not 24,000 but it's something and I have to keep moving forward and I have to keep doing what God wants me to do in this world and despite the terrible tragic indescribable trauma and pain and calamity that he went through, he carried on. Isn't that an incredibly inspiring example to all of us? That even if we find the chips are down, the odds are against us, we are experiencing trauma and pain and hardship and unimaginable difficulty and challenges in our life. But we should draw inspiration from Rabbi Akiva that even though he went through these terrible circumstances, he still carried on. And it, it, it makes me think of uh, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, the, the brilliant uh, professor of psychology from Toronto. So he says that when he has a, um, when he has a client who says to him that he is um, depressed, so or that he or she is depressed. So he said what he determines first is if that individual, um, if there, if is, is it the circumstances of their life that is leading them to this feeling of depression or maybe it is a clinical depression. So he first asks them, um, do you have a intimate relationship? Are you married? Do you have a family? Do you have friends? Are you part of a broader community? Do you have a job? The fundamentals that um, are essential for a person to ha have a healthy life, a healthy psychological life. He said, if all those things are in place and the answer is yes to those questions, so then probably it is a case of clinical depression and um, medications are required. Uh, he said, however, if a person um, does not answer yes to those questions and he does not have an intimate relationship in a marriage or family or friends, or a job, and their life is a mess, 
So he said, so the, the feelings of depression are as a result of the world crashing around them. And he said, then he recommends to those individuals to start small. And he looks for some area where the monster could be held back slightly and they could begin to build themselves and build their life. He says, for example, he tells them to clean their room or clean their home or start small and begin to pick themselves up again and build themselves in a small, gradual way. And that's what Rabbi Akiva did. He picked himself up and he started again and he turned to these five Talmudim who would become the link in the chain, who would become the transmitters of our tradition to the next generation, and he began to rebuild. And as Rabbi friend actually says, that's why it's Rabbi Akiva who emphasizes the teaching, We know we just read in Pasha's Kedoshim a few weeks ago, that God commands us, love your fellow as yourself. And Rabbi Akiva, it says in the Sifra, and it says in the Yerushalmi in the Dorim, that Rabbi Akiva very often emphasized this um, teaching, this klal, this principle. That was one of the important principles by which he lived his life. And obviously he taught it to his students as well. But in order to be able to love your fellow, so one has to see the good in one's fellow. And Rabbi Akiva had this ability that even though there was a lot of darkness around him and there was a lot of tragedy and suffering, he was still able to see the positive, still able to see the good and pick himself up and and focus on that good. So likewise, when dealing with our fellows, that, you know, everybody, all of our fellows, we are all complex creatures, aren't we? And we all have good points and bad points. We all have strengths and weaknesses. But in order to love our fellow, we have to be able to see the good in them. We have to be able to see their positive attributes and their positive character traits. And when we focus on the positive, so then we can generate a love for them and an acceptance of them and an understanding of their situation. So Rabbi Akiva had that ability. He worked on himself to the degree that he was able to see the good in others. Love your fellow. That's a great principle in the Torah. And therefore, one should work on that, which Rabbi Akiva did. And then we see a similar kind of midah, similar kind of character trait, that he was able to see the good in others, and he was also able to see the good in his situation. And that even though he had lost everything, at all um, completely disintegrated before his eyes, but he was still able to see the good in what was left. Even though it all crashed down, he still saw some embers that were still burning. He still saw some foundations that were still there upon which he could rebuild. And so that should be one of the great um, inspiring lessons we take with us from Lagba Omer, is we celebrate on that day. We have Ksas Simcha because it's through Rabbi Akiva's resilience that he was able to build his students, one of them being Rabbi Shem Bayechai, who brought great light into the world. And so we remember even if we're surrounded by terrible darkness, we should try and work on finding the light and, and hone in on that light and slowly rebuild our situation, our circumstances, and our relationships based on um, the small light that we may see around us. So that is the, uh, many say, is the reason why this Ksat Simcha on Lagba Omer, we have a bit of joy amongst the darkness because 
we see that with resilience and with his ability to focus on the light, um, that should be a comfort for it, for us and should bring us some joy. Okay, so now what I want to do is talk about the great and holy Ramah. So yesterday being the 18th of Iyar was Lagba Omer, the Yod site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but also was the Yod site of the Ramah Rav Moshe Isilis. The Ramah was born in the year 1520, and he died in the year 1572. He lived in Krakow. He was born in Krakow. He moved around a little bit, but he, at a very young age, became the rabbi of Krakow, which was one of the great centers of Jewish life in Eastern Europe, in Poland. And uh, many actually say that the Ramah died at the age of 33, which is incorrect. He, he, 33 is very much associated with the Ramah, so people make a mistake and say he died at the age of 33, but it's not true. He was 52 when he died. The reason why 33 is associated with him is because he wrote 33s for him, and he died on Lagba Omer, which is the 33rd day of the Omer, and he died in the Jewish year 5733. So we see all the 33s, but he actually died at the age of 52. Now, the Ramor did something. I mean, they say about the Ramor, there's a, there's a pasuk in Devarim that says, Obnei Yisrael Yoitzeb Miyad Ramor. So the Klai Yisrael, um, they left Eretz, they left Mitzrayim, Biyad Ramor, with a, with Hashem's, Ramor means he's Hashem's great hand, Hashem's lifted hand. That's how Klai Yisrael left Mitzrayim. But there's a play on words over there. Obnei Yisrael Yoitzeb, the Jewish people, Yoitzeb, they fulfill halacha, Bayad with the hand of the Ramah, with the writings of the Ramah. Um, what the Ramah did, he did one of the most remarkable things in all of uh, Jewish history. Absolutely incredible what he did. The Ramah, he lived at the same time as Rav Yosef Karo. Rav Yosef Karo, we, that we call the Machaber, and the Rav, he, the Rav Yosef Karo was living in Sfat at the time. Rav Yosef Karo was born in the year 1488. And he died in the year 1575. He died at the age of 87 years old. And he was the Gadlador, the Beis Yosef, the Rav Yosef Karo. And he was, uh, he was really the leader, the greatest rabbi in the Sephardi world. And the Ramor of Moshe, Moshe Isilis was the greatest rabbi in the Ashkenazi world. So Rav Yosef Karo was in Tzfat, in Eretz Israel, And the Ramor was in Krakow, was in Eastern Europe, in Poland. And they corresponded with one another. Um, it took eight months for the letters to reach each other. Uh, today we send a WhatsApp and instantly our emails, our WhatsApps, our calls are um, received around the globe. In those days it was a lot more difficult to communicate. It took eight months for the letters to reach each other. And the Ramah was working on a project and so too was Rav Yosef Karo. And Rav Yosef Karo completed is Shulchan Aruch. Now the Shulchan Aruch is, Shulchan Aruch means set table. It is the summary of the halachas of the Rishonim, which come from the Gemaras. In other words, we have what's called the written Torah, as we mentioned earlier. And then we have the Torah Sheba al the oral tradition. The oral tradition describes all of Jewish practice and life, all of halacha. Halacha is the a way a Jew is supposed to live. In other words, it's how we fulfill God's commandments in this world. So that's halacha. Halacha means to walk. It's how we walk in this world in the ways of God. 
And the, uh, all of the halachot come from the Gemara. The Gemara discusses the verses in the Torah and explains what they mean and explains how that, uh, implements, how that manifests in our lives, how we're supposed to practice the different, um, requirements that God teaches us in the Torah. And there are many discussions in the Gemara. They're complicated discussions. They're lengthy discussions. And, um, the, the final, what we call psak halacha, psak means poisek means to cut. The final, uh, halachic decision is quite complicated to work out from the Gemara. The Rishonim, the great Rishonim, do that work for us and explain what the practical halacha is from the discussions in the Gemara. There were three great Rishonim that did that. They were the Rosh, the Rif, and the Rambam. They did that in the 12th and 13th century. And they were able to, um, to extract the practical halacha from the Talmud, from the Gemara. Rav, uh, Yosef Karo then in the 16th century took the opinions of the, the Rif and the Rosh and the Rambam and he, he, um, he filtered it down. He, uh, he wrote a summary of those opinions in what he called his Shulchan Aruch which was he distilled the opinions of those three into a final halachic ruling, which is how the Jewish people practice what we follow, what the halacha is in every given situation. So he summarized it from the Rith, the Rambam, and the Rosh. Um, now, he sent a letter to the Ramah, Rav Moshe Isilis, in Poland, and he told him that he had done that, that he had, wrote, he had written his Shulchan Aruch. And the Ramah was absolutely astounded when he received that letter because he had been doing exactly the same thing. He had just finished doing exactly what the Shulchan Aruch did. But the Shulchan Aruch beat him to, just beat him at the final stretch to the finish line. And he printed his Shulchan Aruch as the Ramah was about to do the same. And so the Ramah had a choice. Either he could say, okay, wonderful. Rabbi Yosef Kero wrote the uh, the comprehensive work of halacha for the Jewish people, which would be for the Sfadi world, because of those three, the Rif, the Rambam, the Rosh, so the Rambam and the Rif were both Sfadi, only the Rosh was Ashkenazi, and he always took the majority opinion. So it would be very easy for the Ramah to say that the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Kero, wrote his Shulchan Aruch for Sfadim, that would be the practice, the final work which describes Jewish practice for the Sfadi world. And he would then write his own book, which would be for the Ashkenazi world, which would be based on the practices and the psakim, the halachic rulings of the great Ashkenazi Rabbonim. And he could very easily have done that. But he decided to do something which was an incredible act of humility. He thought, uh, my intention is obviously to teach what the halacha is for Ashkenazim, and there are some areas where we differ, and our practices um, have uh, some slight deviations. Most of what we do is the same, but there are a few areas where the nuances may change. So the Ramah said, instead of writing my own book for the Ashkenazi world, what I'm going to do is unify the Jewish world, and I'll just write notes on the teachings of Rav Yosef Karov, the Shulchan Aruch. And he called his work the Mapa, the Mapa, which is a tablecloth, or the Hagar, which is notes. 
So the Shulchan Aruch wrote, the, Rav Yosef Kar wrote the Shulchan Aruch, which is the set table, and the, the Ramah wrote the Mappa, which is the t- tablecloth, Hagar, which is the notes on the Shulchan Aruch. So whenever he agrees with the Shulchan Aruch, he doesn't say anything. Whenever there's a slight change of the practice of, practice of Ashkenazim, so he tells us of that slight change in, in his, his notes called the, the, the Mappa, of the Hagah, which is an unbelievable act of humility, and something as a result of that unified all of Klai Yisrael. So now every Jew in any corner of the world learns Shulchan Aruch, and will follow the Psakim, the rulings of the Shulchan Aruch, and if there's some changes that the Ashkenazim do, so it's written in there, in the Shulchan Aruch as well, in the writings of the Ramah, which is just so breathtaking, how he was not interested in his own glory, and in his own honor, and his own recognition, he was only interested in building the Jewish world and in being able to um, unify Klai Yisrael in order that our practice would be fall under one single work of the Shulchan Aruch and we would be together in our practice as a Jewish people. An incredible act of humility. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We've been speaking about Lagba Omer, the Yotzite of Rabbi Shumbaya Chai, and also the Yotzite of the great Ashkenazi Rabbi Rav Moshe Isilis the Ramah. The Ramah wrote his work and unified Klai Yisrael with the Shulchan Aruch. And therefore, to this day, when we learn halacha, when we learn Jewish law, Jewish practice, legal practice, so that's the sefer that every Jew learns. Um, the Shulchan Aruch divided into four different sections and is the authentic and uh, comprehensive work on Jewish law. The Ramah was a Talmud of Rav Shalom Shachneh, who was one of the greatest rabbi in Poland at the time, and he married his daughter Golda. And in one year, the Ramah experienced tremendous tragedy. His mother, his wife, and his um, grandmother died in a plague at that time, which was common in the in those times in the 16th century, which was very, very sad and heartbreaking. Uh, the Ramah was a Rav of a shul, so for Rav of a shul not to be married is not a good idea. Um, our rabbis suggest that a rabbi should uh, quickly find a wife because he's dealing with the community and he's dealing with many people and many shilas in the community and many ladies in the community. And so it's not a, a good idea, not a healthy situation um, to remain single. And so he got married quite quickly, the Ramoy, his second wife, um, he found quite quickly. He remarried. And in fact, it actually says on his matseva, that his wife, his original wife, Golda, says on her matzeva, sorry, on her uh, tombstone, that she was the daughter of Rashom Shachne, but doesn't say she was the wife of the Ramor, out of covered of respect to his second wife. His uncle was the Marshal. The Marshal was in Lublin, and he was in Krakow. Marshal was the great rabbi in Lublin, and we have their correspondence, which is very interesting to see. Uh, the Marshal would write to his nephew, the uh, Ramor that his Hebrew writing, you know, when he, he wrote many chuvas. It was very common in those days that you received questions and you replied to those questions in a letter form. And later those letters were printed as the chuvas, as the answers of these Rabonim. 
So he said that his writing was in a very simple style, and as an important rabbi, he should write in a more sophisticated style. And he writes back to his uncle to say um, he's writing for the common man, and if he writes in too sophisticated a Hebrew, they won't understand what he's saying, and it's important that his, uh, you know, what he's describing as the halacha is clear and is not misunderstood. Anyway, it's, it's interesting, and their personalities were very, very different. The Marashal was a very strong, um, Roshlom Aluri, a very strong person, was a no-nonsense person. He was ready to stand up and fight the battles for Torah. And the Ramah was a much more gentle individual. He was far less confrontational. And he uh, was somebody who'd, who tried to avoid machlaikas and avoid conflict. And uh, he pursued shalom. So you can see the different personalities in their writings. When he died, his uncle actually had written on his tombstone, Mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam kamoshe. From Moshe until Moshe, nobody arose like Moshe. So that is the inscription on the tombstone of the Rambam, actually, interestingly enough. Rav Moshe ben Maimon. Now the Rambam is buried in Tiberia and Tiberias. When you're next in Eretz Israel, go to Tiberia to Tiberias. And in the, near the city center is the cemetery where the Rambam is buried. It's very worthwhile going there. And you'll see written on the grave. Mi Moshe ad Moshe lo kam kamoshe. So the Rambam died. In 1203. And what was written there from Moshe, the, the, the meaning of that was from Moshe Rabbeinu until Moshe ben Maimon, there was nobody else like, like these individuals, these Moshe's. But the Ramah, who was then buried 300 years later, 350 years later, um, so he, uh, on his tombstone, um, it says Moshe Moshe, so probably what his uncle meant is from, from the Rambam until the Ramah, there was nobody else like these individuals. Um, and, uh, he uh, he was somebody who uh, is remembered as being one of the great leaders of the Jewish people with his tremendous humility. He wrote the notes on the Shulchan Aruch. He's got a famous work of tshuvas, 132 tshuvas, 132 answers to questions that were asked to him. And uh, he, we see him as one of the great lights of Klai Israel of the Jewish world, the Holy Ramor. So let's carry on. We don't have long left, do we? Let's just mention one or two more things. I wanted to mention to you that today is the 19th of ER, and it's the Yotzat of Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg. Rabbi Meir of Rottenburg, he was uh, just after the Rambam. He was born in 1215, uh, he died in 1293. Also a great commentator of the Talmud. He was the leader of German Jewry, and he was known by the acronym Maharam. Um, when leaving Germany, Rabbi Rottenburg was arrested on false charges, and a huge ransom was imposed for his release. The money was raised, but he forbade it to be paid on the grounds that it would encourage further hostage-taking amongst Jewish leaders. At great personal sacrifice, he preferred to remain in prison in order to save many others a similar fate, which in the Middle Ages was a common thing. They would con- uh, kidnap a um, prominent person, and they would um, then ask for ransom. Now, um, uh, amongst in the non-Jewish world, unless they came from aristocracy or uh, royalty so people didn't want to you know didn't raise money to save anybody but when the Jewish community which as we stood at Mount Sinai like one person with one heart we gravitate together to save our fellow Jews and so the Ramah saw that sorry Maram saw that if they paid his ransom so many other great Jewish leaders in Europe would be in trouble would be would face a similar fate and therefore he refused for them to pay the ransom. And he died in captivity seven years later. 
His body was not released for another 14 years when a Jew named Alexander Suskin uh, gave away most of his fortune to ransom his body on condition that he would later have the honor to be buried alongside the Maharam, the Rabbi Rottenberg, which is a very interesting story within Jewish history. Please stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. I want to mention one or two th- more things before we end. And that is tomorrow is the 20th of year. So today is the 19th of the month of year, the Jewish calendar, uh, the Yotzad of the Maharam. And tomorrow is the 20th of year. 20th of year is significant um, in ancient Jewish history because it's on this day that the Jewish people left Mount Sinai in the year 1311 before the Common Era. In the Jewish years, it's 2449. They left Mount Sinai to go to Eretz Israel. If the Jews hadn't complained about the difficulties of traveling in the desert, they would have entered the land of Israel immediately. As it was, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before entering the land. So it's on this day, in the year 1311 before the Common Era, that the Jewish people left Mount Sinai. So no, it's actually not today, it's tomorrow, the 20th of year. And also a very interesting fact, which I thought I would mention, because we've just had the coronation of King Charles III, and uh, interestingly enough, tomorrow is the anniversary of um, the saving of the life of King George III of England. Um, it was the year 1800, and an English Jew by the name of D.M. Dight saved the king's life. King George was attending a theater presentation when a lunatic in the audience fired a gun point blank at the king. Two bullets missed their target, passing harmlessly over the king's head. It was revealed later that D.M. Dight had struck the would-be assassin's arm as he pulled the trigger. And that saved the king's life. As a reward, Dight asked for, and was granted, a monopoly on the sale of opera tickets. So that happened, um, the anniversary of that is tomorrow um, in the year 1800. Very interesting and fascinating history. And one more thing I wanted to uh, share with you, and that is on Shabbos, it is the 22nd of Iyar. The 22nd of Iyar is uh, the day in 1944 that the Nazis began deporting the Hungarian Jews to their death, to the concentration camps. Um, This was one of the final tragedies of the Holocaust, and 400,000 Hungarian Jews were taken to the gas chamber, chambers in a matter of weeks. didn't take long. Remember, it's already after D-Day, after the um, landings of the Allies on the Normandy coast, and they now heading straight towards Germany, and the Eastern Front, the Germans are failing. So the war is, the Germans are floundering on uh, on all of the front lines of their battles, yet they still focus on and dedicate resources to the destruction of the Jews. Um, because this is the one of the goals, one of the, the major goal of World War Two and of um, Hitler's power is to annihilate the Jews. Tens of thousands of Jews died on death marches from Budapest to Austria. Others were shot and thrown in the Danube River. During this time, Raoul Wallenberg, the Swedish diplomat, 
stationed in Budapest issued thousands of Swedish identity documents to protect the Jews from deportation. He's credited with saving tens of thousands of Jewish lives as a result of his efforts. So the anniversary of that is the 22nd of ER, which is this Friday night and Shabbos. Thank you so much for listening and hope you heard earlier part of the show the great lesson from Rabbi Akiva, which teaches us to be resilient and to keep going despite the difficulties that we are facing, the tragedies that may be around us, the hardship of our circumstances. We should always find the light in the darkness and keep moving forward, rebuilding ourselves in small steps. And please, God, that will lead us to achieve our ultimate purpose and mission. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening.